Welcome to the Agris Law Firm video podcast. I'm Taylor Kasla, an attorney at Agris Law Firm. Today we're talking about probate and estate planning with attorney Colleen McNulty. Colleen is an associate attorney at the Garfalo Law Group. Hi, Colleen. How are you doing? I'm good, Taylor. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, let's start off with how you began to work at the Garfalo Law Group. I started working at Garfalo Law Group a little over two years ago now. Um, I had just taken the bar exam and I, I was doing some part-time work for Adaptivar. I don't know if you know it, but they're an online bar prep company. Yeah, um, I'm familiar with them. Yeah, it was developed by a Kent alum, Tarek Fidel. And he, he's really good friends with Greg. So he knew I was looking for something. So he, he gave my name to Greg and Greg reached out. And, and that's kind of how I got working with him. And um, I've been working there ever since. Great. Sounds like you like what you do based on our previous conversations. You like who you work for. What sort of estate planning services do you provide? So we, we do a lot of estate planning services, especially now with the pandemic. Um, we have a couple different estate planning packages, which I'll talk about later. But um, basically, we have a basic will plan. We have a living trust plan. We do some advanced planning as well. And then Medicaid and retirement plans. And then, of course, special needs planning as well, which is really important. And what sort of special needs planning do you do? Um, we do a lot for families who have... Um, children with special needs to make sure that, you know, if something happens to the parents, everything is set up for the minor if they were to pass. Um, and and it, it, it helps so that they're protected later on in life and that they have all the benefits that they would need. Okay. Um, when I think of having a will or trust, I think of people my parents' age. When do your clients typically come to you for estate planning advice? And when do you recommend they should come to you for estate planning advice? So we definitely have clients um, of all ages. And I think that the, the answer to when we recommend someone begin is going to shock you. because. And I was talking with, um, with Greg about this as well. And when I first started, it was kind of surprising to me. Um, but we recommend the age of 18. Wow. So, and we do that because at least at the age of 18, you should have powers of attorney in place. And we can talk about that a little bit more when we talk about guardianship. But, you know, the reason being is we, we do have a lot of cases right now where unfortunately, you know, it's someone who has passed away very young. And the issue, the issue becomes, um, for example, paternity. In Illinois, there is no presumption of paternity. So if you have, you know, someone who um, you're not close with as a father or, you know, you never had him in your life, it's best to have a will to essentially disinherit him. Um, you know, we have a couple cases right now where we're fighting because, you know, the, the father was never on the birth certificate, never had a role in the child's life. But we have to fight to get him off airship because he is an heir when the decedent passed away. So it, it, it just becomes, you know really difficult and it's a lot of money because we have to litigate the issue so it's better if you have a will as soon as you can especially if there's a situation where you don't want a family member to inherit any of your any of your estate well it sounds like i'm quite far behind on the game so we might have to schedule a call to do some estate planning for myself um 
Can you explain the key differences between a will and a trust? Sure. So I think um, I think a lot of people get these confused and I think it's just, you know, I think a lot of people don't understand the, the estate planning process. So basically what a will is, is, you know, you can express your wishes for how you want your property to be distributed upon your death and you can appoint someone to to um, to administer your estate. Um, but the difference, the main difference between a will and a trust is that even if you have a will, your state still needs to go through probate. Most likely if you have a trust, a trust will avoid probate. And, and that's the most helpful thing about a trust is, is basically what a trust does it, is it creates a legal entity where you can put nearly all of your property into it. So it avoids probate. And that's helpful because it allows your loved ones to get a distribution faster upon your death and it'll avoid all of the issues with probate, like legal fees, court costs, you know, it's a public proceeding. So everything is out there for the public to view. So that that's kind of the benefit of having a trust is that it would avoid that whole probate process and everything that, you know, the stress and everything that comes with that. Okay. So it's, an expedited and more efficient way of, you know, setting up assets that avoids the court process and the costs associated with that. Exactly. Okay. Um, what is an executor of an estate and what are the roles and duties of an executor of an estate? Sure. So an executor is usually the person that the deceased named in their will to administer the estate. Um, so in most wills, you'll see, you know, there's someone appointed to um, be the executor or there's an, a successor executor appointed if that person isn't willing to act. Um, but in, an, in going along with that question, an administrator is someone um, that's that's the term for it's, it's basically the term for an executor. But if you don't have a will, so an, the court appoints an administrator if the person dies without a will and basically their job is to administer and, and it's really just the procedure to change title to the estate, that's their job. So they have to, you know, they have to file the will. If there is one, they have to file the proper court documents. They have to notify creditors um, and, and any debtors. So they have to really go through that whole process. And then at the end of that whole period, then they can administer whatever is left to the heirs or beneficiaries. So their job is really to, you know, work with the court, work with the attorneys and document any assets and, and gather inventory lists and, and provide all this information to the beneficiaries, the creditors and the court. And you kind of touched on this and if the term had, terminology, if I remember it correctly, it's uh, when someone dies without a will, it's intestate. Is that correct? All right. What happens if an Illinois resident dies without a will or trust? How are his or her assets dispersed? Um, so if someone doesn't have a will, it's going to be distributed pursuant to the Illinois Probate Act. And so that's kind of where all the problems start to come in is in like I was talking about earlier, if you have a family member that you don't really, you know, you're not in touch with or you don't know where they are. We have a lot of cases where that happens. So that's why having a will, you can avoid those issues because the probate act was developed by the legislature and it basically just gives a hierarchy of who's going to 
um, be taking the property when the person passes. So for example, if you have a surviving spouse and children, the spouse will take 50% of the property and the children will split the remaining 50%. Um, if you don't have a spouse and you don't have any children, then it, it, it's usually distributed to the parents and any siblings that you have. And in that case, um, a lot of what a lot of times what people don't realize is that half siblings are still your siblings. Um, so we have a lot of cases where that becomes an issue if you know if the if one of the parents of the deceased had children with another woman or had 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 another family and the decedent had no relationship to them. That that's where the issue comes up because you know a lot of the family says that you know say that they didn't have a relationship and they don't want to share that property with them, but by law, they are heirs and they will be receiving under the estate. I do remember my law school professor for estates and trust telling me that if you like reality television, you'll like this <laughs> area of law. And I like reality television and, you know, I, I find this area of law really interesting. But if someone wants to avoid all the drama and hire you as their attorney, how much does it cost for your firm to prepare a will or trust? So we, like I said in the beginning, we have a couple different plans um, and I'll, I'll go through the, the two basic ones. So we have a basic will plan, which can cost anywhere from, you know, $2,000 to $3,500. Um, and that package includes the drafting of a will, the drafting of a power of attorney, both property and healthcare, um, a living will, which is an end of life directive, a HIPAA authorization form, you know, and then all the consultations and letters that go with that. And there's a couple different um, options under that plan as well. And then we also do a trust plan, um, a revocable living trust plan, which can go anywhere from $4,000 to $5,500. Um, and that includes also the powers of attorney, a pour over will, um, the assignments of personal property to the trust, which is basically funding the trust. Because if you have a trust, it's also important to fund it and make sure that all of your assets are in trust. Because if they're not, then you're not avoiding probate and you know it wasn't really worth it to draft the trust. So you have to make sure that all of the necessary assets are put into your trust as well. So we assist with that process as well. I assume you'd have to continue to update that trust as you acquire more assets over time as well. You don't necessarily have to update your trust, but you just have to make sure that you are titling the assets properly so that they are in the name of the trust. Okay. And are there other packages that you have or is that pretty we, much we it? Do, um, we have a couple other ones. Like I said in the beginning, we do special needs planning if it's necessary. We can do advanced planning. Um, I know Greg has also done a couple um, estate plannings for people who own businesses to protect their business interests and everything like that. Um, another one that's interesting is, you know, Medicaid planning and stuff like that, because that helps protect government benefits. You know, as you know, I'm sure you're familiar with this. Sometimes if a person receives government benefits and they receive money, that can interfere with them taking those benefits. So, you know, we, we do some estate planning for that as well. And we do that, especially in our guardianship estates. If, if the disabled person is receiving any government benefits, we have to make sure that those are protected. Um, so, so we do estate planning there as well. 
And as far as uh, drafting and creating wills and trusts, is that something that you're doing remote right now? Um, I think it's my understanding that, you know, there are signatures that need to be witnessed and stuff. How are you dealing with that at this time? So it can be it can be done remotely. We we did do it remotely a little bit at the beginning of the pandemic because the governor had that law about um, remote notary, so you could do a notary via Zoom. We did stop that. Um, it, it was a little bit difficult, but we do have people in the office, so we do provide people with a notary and the witnesses for signature. Okay. And I've worked with young personal injury cases where the injured party is deceased and we need a family member appointed to bring the lawsuit. Can you tell me a little bit about this process and what you do to get the person appointed as an administrator of the estate? So unfortunately with a lawsuit, um, you can't really avoid probate because you need to have someone appointed to have the authority to file the lawsuit because a deceased person can't file their own lawsuit. Um, so so that, that process does have to go through probate. And that's why, like you said, we work with a lot of personal injury firms, including yours, to, to get those estates open. So the whole process basically starts out with um, the filing of the will. Like I said earlier, if there is one that needs to be done right away. And then we kind of go through with the client, we go through um, the airship of the decedent, and we get all the opening documents drafted for the court, and then they get filed with the court. And if the, the judge gets assigned to the case, if the judge approves the documents, the estate gets open. And then we start the process of kind of administering the estate. In personal injury cases, when the only asset is a cause of action, Typically, we're not that there. We're not really that involved until the lawsuit settles. We'll only have yearly status dates with the court to advise them how the law division case is going and if there are any other issues. Um, one issue we do deal with right after the estate open is open is creditors. Like I talked about earlier, um, it's really really important that we notify creditors. There is a claims period that occurs when someone passes. Um, the claims period is normally two years from the date of death. But if you publish notice in the law bulletin or a newspaper like that, the claims period gets cut down to six months. So it's really important there that we notify any creditors, any known creditors that the, that the administrator or the person handling the estate knows of. Because if we don't send them notice, then the six months won't apply to them and the two year period will actually apply to them. So that's why it's really important that we know about any creditors and in personal injury cases, it's usually the nursing home who still needs to be paid. Um, it can be credit card companies, you know, the decedent had a credit card and there was an unpaid bill. So those are the ones we see the most often. And it's always important that we notify them right away that the estate has been open so that if they want to file a claim, they can. And the best reason to notify them is because they most likely won't file the claim in the, in the um, allotted time period, and then the claim is barred. Um, yeah. so, that, so that's why we always encourage people to let us know if, if the decedent had any credit cards so we can alert those companies, or if they were a resident at a nursing home, so we can alert the nursing home as well. It's really interesting to hear what you do on your end, even though we work together. <laughs> Feel like I don't have that good of a grasp on you know what you're doing, but I know you're doing a great job always. Under what circumstances will a court appoint a guardian? So guardianship is usually for people who have not executed a power of attorney, um, 
And in that case, what happens is, you know, it's a similar process to probate. You have to file a petition for guardianship. You have to um, get a CCP 211, which is a report of physician. You have to have a doctor's report. Um, and there are several questions on the doctor's report for the doctor to fill out regarding the competency of the respondent. Um, and that's the alleged disabled person. And so after you get all of the, that, those documents together, the court re will review them and the court usually appoints a guardian ad litem. And the guardian ad litem's job is to investigate um, you know, the, the status of the ward, where they're, where they're living, you know, whether or not they're competent, whether or not they have any objections to the petition, because the, the respondent needs to be served with notice because you're, you're essentially stripping their rights away when you are asking to the court to appoint a guardian. So typically the guardian ad litem goes out to visit with them to see if they have any objections, see if they're, you know, capable of even, even responding sometimes, sometimes most, most of the time, you know, our clients are in a coma and they, they can't communicate, but we typically always send the, always have a guardian ad litem appointed to investigate. And then based on the report of the guardian ad litem and the, the report of physician, then the court will appoint a guardian. So it's usually in cases, a lot of the time we see cases of dementia, if, if um, an elderly person didn't have powers of attorney um, and someone needs to start acting for them to make decisions. In, in, in the context of working with your office, it's usually, unfortunately, it's usually some type of bed sore um, from a nursing home or, or you know, another instance with with something that happened at a nursing home, a fall or something, and, and the family wants to bring a lawsuit, if the person doesn't have powers of attorney, then they'll need to have a guardianship open so that someone can sue on their behalf, because in order to file that lawsuit, you have to be competent. And uh, guardianship is pretty common with minors as well, correct? Yeah, so there's guardianship and minors are two separate courts, actually. So there's guardianship and then there's minors estates. And so if, if the minor isn't, isn't competent or suffers from a disability, you can also petition to be a guardian of the minor. Um, minors estates are also common if, if the minor is going to be receiving funds from, from a decedent's estate. You, have to, you always have to open um, a minor's estate if the minor is going to be receiving, I believe it's over $10,000. And what's interesting to me about minors estates and what, what's really hard to explain sometimes to our clients is just because you're someone's parent doesn't mean you have the authority to receipt their funds. Um, so we always have to get a guardian appointed for the minor. And that's sometimes really confusing for clients as well, because they think, well, I'm their mom or I'm their dad. I should already have that authority, but they don't. Yeah, I've, I've certainly encountered that in a few cases on my end. I'm sure COVID-19 has created a high demand for estate planning services and attorneys like yourself. COVID-19 has also changed the landscape for many areas of law. How has it altered your practice? And do you think any of these changes could be permanent? Well, I think um, estate planning has definitely gone up. Um, once the pandemic started, we definitely had a surge of estate planning. And I think it's surging now for like for all of the estate planning attorneys. Um, which has been helpful because it's, it's like I said, it's great to have an estate plan in place. It, it saves a lot of problems in the long run, and it definitely saves on the expenses of opening a probate estate for and, and saving for that on your loved ones. Um, 
So I think that hopefully that stays up. I think that's great. I think it's always, um, it's always great when someone wants to start their estate plan because it means they're starting to think about, you know, what should, what should happen to their assets upon their death and they're expressing their wishes with which the court always gives deference to. So I think that's a great thing. So I hope, I definitely hope that that stays up. Um, the other, the other surge we kind of had in probate was unfortunately um, with nursing homes and the COVID outbreak, we definitely had a lot of surge in lawsuits with that. So there was a, there was a greater need for probate. Um, I, ho I hope that doesn't keep up. <laughs> um, but, but that was kind of the two big surges we had definitely right off the bat.